0: All right, we are in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we've been looking at verses 1 through 10. So I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to that letter Paul's letter to Titus. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, you can turn to page 998, that'll bring you to the right place. Today we're going to go ahead and wrap up this section of Titus. This is part seven. We're going to wrap it up. In this section, as I've said a number of times now, Paul calls for Titus to instruct the Cretan Christians in conduct or behavior or the kind of living that goes with and is fitting for those trusting in and professing belief in the gospel. Why? Why does he do this? Well, as one uh, writer points out, commentator, he says this, the effect of individual Christian behavior on unbelievers cannot be underestimated. Inevitably, unbelievers judge the gospel message by the lives of those who embrace it. Whether we like that or not, that is how it works. As we live, he goes on to say, and identify ourselves as Christians, we can make the gospel message attractive and credible. All these claims that we've been talking about today, about its power to change us and transform us, that it helps us to conquer our sin, right? So we can make it attractive and credible then by our godly attitudes and behavior and therefore help to draw people to that gospel by our godly conduct, by our beautified lives as Christ continues to work in us and we surrender to that work. He goes on to say though, however, if we Christians are perceived as unloving and hypocritical, We provide unbelievers with good reason to be skeptical about the power of the gospel. And for that matter, it's beauty and it's glory. John MacArthur says, Effective evangelism flows from the power of a righteous life. Effective evangelism flows from the power of a righteous life. I agree just thinking through that even in before we read the text and pick up where we left off just thinking about parents with their children right you have basically unbelievers in your home if they have not yet embraced Christ right they're born in they're not just because you're a Christian so we're all clear when they're born they are not Christians they are little beautiful unbelievers and they'll demonstrate that Sure enough, and I would think that a Christian mom and dad would want to see those, those little unbelieving children of theirs embrace Christ, embrace the gospel, right? That's what I would think. That's what I would hope. But if their life is not consistent with that gospel, what message does that send to those children? if they don't see the gospel being lived out in real time, what will they think of that gospel that you're telling them to believe and embrace? What will they think of that Jesus? And so you hear, sadly, the story over and over again about children who grow up, quote, in a Christian home, but the parents are Christian basically on Sunday only, if there is such a thing. Christian. And the rest of the time, they deny the gospel and its power, and their lives do not display the beauty and the glory that Christ is. And so as soon as those children can get out of the house and out from under the rule and reign of those parents, they reject that gospel fully and completely. So it is with parents and children, so it is with the world, beloved. It is important for us to bring our lives into compliance with and under the rule of that gospel we're professing for the sake, for our own sake, certainly, but for the advancement of that gospel, for the effectiveness of evangelism. And so really that is what Paul is getting at here, okay? And we just keep coming back to again and again. Here we are, picking up in verse 1, and we'll uh, just read through until we stop where we left off last time. Paul writes, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and submissive to their own husbands why Paul that the word of god may not be reviled or discredited and that's where we left off last sunday now picking up in verse 6 likewise titus urge the younger men to be self controlled Now, as you might have noticed, after a long list of issues for the young women, seven in total, Paul only brings up one for the younger men. Titus was to urge them to be self-controlled, self-controlled. Some have joked that maybe Paul does that because that's all a young man can handle at any given time, just one instruction, I don't think that's what's going on, certainly. Uh, but what is this about? Well, as I think I've said before, these ethical instructions are not meant to be exhaustive. Paul's not saying everything that could be said about how the Christian is to live his life. But um, rather, he is they, these instructions here, they reflect the distinguishing marks for the various groups uh, being addressed within the Cretan congregations that would enable the churches to be an effective witness for Christ. He's calling out these specific things that he wants, to be, uh, inst- he wants them to be instructed in, that they might be a more effective witness for Christ and would cause them to stand out, uh, certainly in their culture. And so he says of the younger men, and by the way, younger is not uh, teen, you know, young boys. It's marrying age all the way up to the age where in this culture an, an old, you would be identified as an older man, which would probably be in the 60s or late 50s or of that range. So these are adult men, but they refer to them as younger men in that culture. So he says, Titus, train them to be self-controlled. And we've already covered this particular ethic or ethical instruction because he gives the same instruction to elders. He gives the, they are to be self-controlled or as I told you, a better translation I think would be sensible. Self-controlled fine, but uh, you better capture the real meaning of the word by using the word sensible, the English word sensible, but both of them fit. Uh, he's told elders that. He's told the older men to be self-controlled, he's told the uh, younger men now to be self-controlled, and even the young women to be self-controlled. So it's, it's a theme that keeps popping back up. But as I've said before, what that means is Titus is to train them to not act on a whim or according to their impulses or be ruled and led about by their emotions, which is unfortunately so common. But instead, they are to choose to act in accordance with biblical wisdom. And this is the idea of self-control. They choose. They're not led about by their emotions, but they make a decision, I'm going to act in accordance with biblical wisdom. They are to give careful thought of the consequence of any action that they might partake in or engage in. And they are to think carefully about how God would want them to proceed or respond in various circumstances. That is what it is to be biblically sensible and to exercise biblical self-control. They are to think before they speak. They are to think before they act. Opposite, and by the way, if they did that, that would keep them out of a lot of ditches, right? A lot of messes. A lot of problems. If we did that as well, if that's how we uh, acted sensibly. Biblically sensibly. The opposite behavior, just so that you can make sure you understand what's being called for, the opposite behavior would probably be characterized as foolish. They are not to be foolish men. You are not to be foolish men. You are not to be foolish women. They are not to be reckless. They are not to be thoughtless. They are not to be irresponsible. And they are not to be la vida loca for my Spanish speaking friends. Or, you know, embrace that lifestyle. (laughs) The crazy life. You know, not sensible would look like this, not being sensible. Why did you do that? He double-dog dared me. (laughs) I had to do it. That's not sensible. What?
1: Why did you do it? Everyone else was doing it.
0: That's not sensible. And, I, you know, I'm sure you said this if you have kids, you know, when they say everyone else was doing it or everyone else is doing it. Well, if everyone else jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? That's how we respond, right? But it's because we're trying to help them see. That's foolish. Is that how you, you allow your life to be led by the behavior of what everyone else is doing, regardless of how that behavior might turn out or the consequences of it? Is, is that what God has called you to, young man or young woman? Or, my favorite, when I used to ask my son, Why
1: did you do that? I don't know.
0: I don't know. That's not sensible. If you don't even know why you did what you did, then you are just acting on impulse. You're not even thinking about what you're doing. It just felt right, I guess. That's not sensible.
1: It must be right. It must be right.
0: I don't care how you feel about it. It must be right. It must be what God would want you to do or not do. Or, you know, just as kids tend to respond, I don't know, Dad, I wasn't really thinking. Exactly! You weren't really thinking. I'd say you weren't thinking at all. So, Christian, and this is written to adults, not little children, but When adults act like children, foolish children, they're not being sensible. (laughs) You with me? So we are to be sensible. And by the way, just think about that, how frustrating, if you're a mom and dad, think about how frustrating that behavior is when you see it in your children. Right? Pull your hair out frustrating. I used to have hair. Pull your hair out frustrating. (laughs) Um, it's also not beautiful. It's not beautiful. It certainly doesn't woo you or draw you to your child.
1: And so it is. When the Christian
0: is not sensible, doesn't exercise self-control, doesn't stop and pause and allows himself to be led about by the culture or their impulses or their deceitful heart, it's not beautiful. It's not pretty. It's frustrating. And that Christian, while they're professing this gospel that's supposed to right them and put them on a, a good course and to free them from stupidity and foolishness and recklessness and thoughtlessness because God has given you his thoughts and empowered you to walk in them, then the gospel looks like it's not really much of anything. For that matter, it doesn't look that great because those who are adhering to it don't look that great. You see? Sensible. Paul then directs his attention to Titus, Titus' behavior, right? So he just turns, he turns, he, he's addressed the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, and on that note, he turns now to Titus himself. Who is a younger man? Is a younger man. Again, younger men, don't think 16. 30s, 40s, that would still qualify in the culture as a younger man. 20s. And he says to Titus, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. This is similar to what Paul said to Timothy. Timothy. Both Titus and Timothy, you could define them as apostolic representatives. They represented apostles. The Apostle Paul stood in for them, spoke on their behalf. They were trusted gospel co-workers, making the gospel known, teaching and instructing Christians in the gospel, seeing people come to Christ. But Paul says pretty much a similar thing to another young man, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.12, He says, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was in his, likely his 30s when he wrote this. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. And then he gets specific with Timothy here. He says, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, in everything, in everything, set an example. I found the comment um, by one commentator on this passage, uh, something to consider. He said, members of the church at Ephesus might resist the bare words that he taught, Timothy being at Ephesus. They might resist the bare words that he taught, being that he was young, at least in their eyes, he was not yet an aged man, he was young still. So they might resist what he was saying, like, what do you know? Kind of like that. But he goes on to say, but they could not deny the power of the truths that were faithfully exemplified in his life. In other words, if he's living it out, if, if Timothy is, is living out what he's teaching and they see that on display, how are they going to push back against that? There it is. In all of its glory, and all of its beauty, this gospel is powerful, this gospel works, We must surrender ourselves to this gospel. We should. So, two things, though, I want to point out about being an example. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works is what Paul tells Titus. So there's an advantage, right, of modeling this gospel behavior, this good behavior, actually modeling it. It's a great help to those you are instructing. Right? So it's one thing to say it, do this, be this, act like this, it's a whole other thing to put that on display. This is what it actually looks like. So they can see it up close and personal. No longer theoretical, experiential. They can see it being worked out in a person's life. A, now I know exactly what it looks like. B, now I, it's reinforced that this actually works. It's actually possible. Here's a man actually doing it. Being sensible, loving, being pure. You see? That's the advantage of modeling the behavior. There's also a disadvantage of not modeling the behavior. One who says do this and doesn't do this is what? A hypocrite. It's a hypocrite. And... When someone is discovered to be a hypocrite, generally, those who were following them leave. They're not interested in what they have to say anymore. There's no validity to it. You say one thing, you do another. And let me, let me, let me be clear about this. Uh, I've, I've heard someone say, you know, and I, I just want to say no, I don't agree with this statement. That... Uh, you know everyone's a hypocrite all christians are hypocrites no no that's that's not actually a good thing to say that's not right to say okay there's a difference between a christian who is fighting the good fight and what that entails is pushing forward for righteousness and pushing away from his sin and falling but continuing to struggle and seek and repenting and asking for forgiveness when he sins of God and those he sinned against, and keeping on and keeping on and pressing toward that mark. There's a difference between that. That person is not a hypocrite, that person is a, a Christian, a bona fide Christian. So the person over here who is not even living the Christian life, but telling everyone else they ought to live the Christian life but they don't themselves bring themselves under that very word, that person is a hypocrite. And if that's you, then there be questions you should be asking yourself about whether you're even legitimately a Christian. If that's your life, if that's the pattern of your life. So no, I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that Christians are hypocrites. I've heard it in jokes because people say, ah, oh, you know, when you're talking to people the church is filled with hypocrites. Well, there could be some hypocrites there for sure, but if, if what you mean is the church is filled with folks that are fighting their sin and struggling in it, yes. And yeah, there's some hypocrites. Yeah, there no doubt are those who are professing one thing but living a different, they don't possess what they profess, so they're living a completely different life. Yeah, they're hypocritical. They're hypocritical, but people will respond to that. Oh, why don't you just, you know, yeah, the church is full of hypocrites. Why don't you join it? We can, you can take another one in. No, that's, that's not, that's not, That's not Christianity, folks. The Pharisees were called hypocrites. The Pharisees were lost. Okay? Let's just be clear. That kind of wording, that kind of terminology, Jesus used to rebuke those who rejected, really rejected Jesus Christ. So, we we want to be careful because in our if we're not careful, then we might be lumped together in a grouping called hypocrites, and we want to avoid that. Even though we're not, we might be lumped in that because of our laziness or our failure to pursue Christ or to live as we ought in, comply, in, in, in agreement with the gospel and according to it because of the danger that that would do to the gospel itself because they would just reject our message. So that's the disadvantage of not modeling the behavior. Also, it's the old phrase, more is caught than taught. Have you heard that? More is caught than taught? So that, that, as one writer says, aptly sums up the power of teaching by personal example. In other words, I can teach till I'm blue in the face and instruct, and there will be some who receive that and respond, but the reality is more is caught, meaning I see it worked out in your life. And then that, I begin to model that. More works that way than just the teaching. So you teach, and then the life should back that up and reinforce that, and together, very powerful to create change in others or help move others towards likeness. John MacArthur says, Titus was to confront them not only with spiritual words, but with a spiritual life that corresponded to those words. And then he goes on to say, even the most forceful and compelling counsel will fall on deaf ears if the one who gives it fails to live by it. And this is why the the standards for the elders who are to do the primary teaching in the church, this is why their character must be this way. It's non-negotiable because they can chat and talk all they want, but if their life doesn't align with what they're saying, no one's going to listen. No one's going to follow them.
1: But it's not just for
0: elders. This is written to the church at large. He's calling them to, and especially Titus, who's doing the instruction, but model that, those good works. Be a model of good works, so that they see, as you're giving instruction you're living out that very instruction that they might do it as well. Beloved, if Titus is called to be a model of good works as he gives instruction, right? Why would it not be true for us as parents in our homes? Back to that again. Um, How about husbands or wives? As As you're... you know, instructing in the gospel and in biblical things, are you living it out? Are you living that out? Are you a model to your spouse of good works? How about making disciples of other Christians, brothers, Christian brothers and sisters? You know, it's it's one, we have a discipleship course, great, but the discipleship course should be more than just words, like this is what it is to be a Christian. It should be that, this is what it is, this is what the Bible says, and watch me live. This is what it is. It should be both. Otherwise, it's just words. Powerless words, really, at that point. You've ripped the power out of them in the person's mind. And just thinking about, you know, as an example, you tell your children when they, when they wound one another, hopefully you tell them, all right, Bobby, Bobby, That's not right, What you did to your brother. Now go and ask your brother for forgiveness. Yeah? And so, you, you know, you do this little thing, and they're frustrated, but you make them do it, and they go, no, that's not, do it with a happy heart. Do it with a happy heart. And so then they ask for forgiveness, and then you instruct the other one. Okay, now, what do you, Bobby asked you for forgiveness. Now what? What are you supposed to do? Forgive him. Yes? I forgive you. You know, this kind of thing goes on, right? But does that happen between mom and dad? Because if it doesn't,
1: then you're not modeling good work. You're not modeling what you're telling the kids to do.
0: So eventually they're going to think, this is nonsense. Bobby, we should always love one another in our family. Is that what it looks like between husband and wife? You do your your kids a great disservice if you're giving them all this instruction and then not living it out yourself. You see?
1: So, it's no different. In the church,
0: he says, listen, Titus... You show yourself to be a model of good works. You be an example to them. Paul then now turns to Titus' responsibilities in the community. Gospel proclamation. Back to verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. That cannot be condemned. One writer says, personal example must precede effective teaching, but his teaching, both in its manner and content, must be of the highest quality. So his life must be of the highest quality, and his instruction, his teaching, his gospel proclamation must be of the highest quality, both in manner and content. So he gets at that with... Three things here show integrity, show dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Integrity. Literally, the word is without corruption. The uh, one translation calls it purity, but I think it would be best just to think of it as purity of motive or a pure motive, which is why the ESV translates it integrity. Integrity. Lacking in our culture, for sure. Teaching with integrity—it it involves being mindful of your own values with regard to teaching, and making sure those values align with what you are teaching. <laughs> Let your teaching show integrity. He's not, he's not a used car salesman. I don't know. I shouldn't. I know I've used that before, and I, I'm, there's probably—and again, I don't. If you're a good used car salesman, fine. I'm using stereotypes for sure. He's not a used car Suppose me He's not a false teacher. He's not pitching one thing and doing something else. He believes this stuff. He's honest in his communication. You see it in his life. It shows up. He's preaching what he believes is true and living accordingly. He has integrity. He's living it out. It shows up in his teaching. It shows up in his life. His life was to correspond to the doctrine that he proclaimed. Your teaching show integrity. If it didn't, then there would be an opportunity for the opposition to come along and question the legitimacy of his teaching, the legitimacy of the gospel. And Paul is trying to see that avoided at all at all if possible. Avoid that. That's bad for the gospel. It's bad for the advancement of Christ. Show integrity, show dignity. Dignity, that's the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. One Reiner said the presentation of his teaching was to be characterized by dignity and inspire respect in the hearers. It's dignified communication.
1: Uh, The opposite would be
0: undignified, lacking in dignity, unbecoming. When he communicates, it's unbecoming the way he communicates. Unworthy
1: of honor or respect.
0: Even even if you might disagree with Titus, you should be able to walk away and say, it was dignified. He was dignified, it was dignified. The man has integrity. It shows up in his teaching right? Nothing I can say about it. Nothing bad, really. Can't. And then, finally, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. One writer says, no critic will be able to point out anything in it justly open to severe disapproval or rebuke. The original language that's there suggests the picture of a courtroom where the judge can find no basis for the accusation of the plaintiff. That's the idea. No basis for the accusation. It could also refer to a really just a sound, sound speech, that word sound, healthy, wholesome. So in this context, it could be healthy, persuasive, well thought out, and attractively delivered presentation. Presentation characterized as speech that cannot be condemned. I've seen some gospel presentations, especially some street preachers, and I'm not sure I would walk away and say that was speech that cannot be condemned. Wasn't necessarily attractive. Wasn't uh, wholesome, per se. Wasn't dignified. One writer says, Paul obviously recognized that the medium Plays an important part in the effectiveness or successful communication of the message. How it's delivered, words that you're using. Let it be of the highest quality, Titus. Both your life and your communication, both your conduct and your gospel presentation, let it be of the highest caliber. Paul. One writer says, Paul was always concerned lest those who oppose be provided ammunition for their attacks. Look, the gospel enters into a world that's hostile to its content, right? To its content. God, in his sovereign purposes, is, is drawing people still through that gospel. What Paul is saying is, listen, you as the deliverer of that gospel message... Your life needs to be excellent and the deliverance of that message needs to be excellent so that we don't give them unnecessary ammunition to push back against the gospel. That's what he's saying. Why would you do that? We want that gospel message to do what it's supposed to do. Be winsome. Be beautiful. Both in word and in deed. Be attractive. And through that attraction... God will attract his elect unto that message. He goes on to say, look, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why, Paul? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Nothing evil to say about us. No no legitimate challenge or criticism will stand. What are they going to say? This is an upright fellow. In the end, if you examine it closely, he's an upright fellow. He's bringing a message, a dignified message. He, he brings a message of integrity. It's, you can see it in his life. He believes this. It's honest. He's not trying to pull a fast one. He's not a false teacher. He's not a used car salesman or a snake and oil salesman or whatever. You know, He's not that. This guy's living this out. He believes this with all of his heart. His speech is healthy and wholesome and beautiful and in, in bringing it to bear on us. And his life is commendable. Criticize the message maybe. You don't like it, fine, but you don't like what he's saying, but... You can't bring any legitimate accusation against the man or the way he's bringing that message to us. There's, there's no. So the opponents, and there's always opponents, and Paul was very familiar with that and faced it everywhere he went. He's basically saying, don't give them ammunition to to push back against us and go, oh look at this guy. This guy's a hypocrite. This guy doesn't really believe this stuff. Or he says this gospel saves and transforms. I don't see that in his life. He he looks just like all the pagans. And look, even when he brings the message, he he brings it harshly, or he brings it in a way that's not honorable. And look at the way he talks and speaks. Nothing commendable about that. So Paul says, Timothy, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. When Iyer says, if justified, if these accusations could be justified, such attacks would bring discredit on Christ's servants and his cause. That's the point. The final group in the church that Paul addresses is bond servants or slaves. Bondservants servants or slaves. So he's addressed older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus, and now, final category, bond servants or slaves. Verse 9, bondservants servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why, Paul? So that In everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, which is the gospel. You know, as we talked about before, when we went through Romans, slaves formed a significant element in the first century churches. And the welfare of the faith, as one writer puts it, demanded that they too accept their spiritual responsibility as believers. Their primary duty, as we see here, was to be submissive to their masters in everything. Submissive to their masters in everything. Voluntarily accepting subjection to their masters as a matter of principle. That was how they were to conduct themselves. Of course, and we say this, and of course, Paul's not suggesting or saying, submit to them, even if it means going against God. No, of course not. But as, as a matter of principle, they are, as long as it doesn't go against God, submit to their masters. Paul elaborates on their submission, explaining really the character of it. They are to be well-pleasing. Well-pleasing. Now, beloved, it, 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 doesn't, parallel, it doesn't parallel perfectly. We draw a parallel with this and their economic, socioeconomic situation with employer employees. Okay? But there were differences, <laughs> like really serious differences. Like, if you don't like your place of employment, you can leave. That was not the case here. Okay? Um, and there are many other things that we could say. So, while you can make application, and you should, of the principles that are taught here to you as an employee under an employer, on servant master, uh, just remember what Paul is calling on them to do is even really more of a, a serious commitment and sacrifice. They, uh, they didn't have a lot of recourse for uh, getting out of a bad situation, as we do today. And yet, even in that situation, very, could be a very difficult situation, Paul says, submit to your masters and everything. What does that look like? What's the character of it? Well-pleasing. It, it literally is, give. Sati- you could say, give satisf- satisfaction to. They are to give satisfaction to their masters. Well-pleasing. Right? To do what they do to the degree, Not so that would look like, I'm not doing just what I need to do to get by. I'm doing what I'm doing to make my master happy, to bring him satisfaction. To be well-pleasing, one must not be argumentative, <laughs> or pilfering, or pilfering. And these are two negative forms of behavior that may have been, and why Paul brings them up, just like he did with the older women, um, prohibiting certain behaviors. They may have been universally, these behaviors may have been universally common among slaves, but the Christian slave should avoid these Behaviors. He should avoid those behaviors. The one who's complying with the gospel, believing the gospel. So he's not to be argumentative. The idea, the general idea, is not opposing, not contradicting. The NAT translates it to do, he is to do what is wanted and not talk back. Uh, the the uh, one commentary explains it as not to dispute the master's commands and by deliberate resistance seek to thwart their will. That is what is included in not being argumentative, not opposing, not contradicting, not pushing back. To be compliant, and not just compliant, but to seek to please, to their satisfaction. Not pilfering, not stealing would be the other negative form of behavior that Paul says the bondservant should not be guilty of. Um, the word, the Greek word there implies pilfering, stealing, or misappropriating funds. How would a slave misappropriate funds? Well, just so you know, slaves in the first century, it's not like the slavery that we uh, are familiar with in American history. It's not like that. But uh, these slaves were gathered together basically through you know, wars that Rome was waging. And so they became slaves when they would conquer peoples and then they were sold to and back and forth. And, but uh, these slaves were given a number of responsibilities. These were folks who were educated often. Um, they would manage the household. They would uh, be entrusted with buying goods. And so they would take care of the finances. So there was opportunity for them to Steal in that way. Uh, Misappropriate funds, if you would. He says, don't do that, right? Don't be guilty of those things that you do see that are common among the slave community in the first century. Positively, so those are the negatives, positively, you're to be showing all good faith. What does that mean? Well, the niv eighty. The NEIV says, show that they, can be full, they should show that they can be fully t- trusted. They are to demonstrate utter faithfulness. So it's not just that um, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to push back. It's not just that, but it's also over here on this side, I am, a, I am your servant and I can be fully trusted. You can trust me with your family. You can trust me with your finances. You can trust me with my responsibilities. You can trust me. That's what Paul's calling for. And so, employee, is that you? Because that's what the gospel calls you to. And these things still apply. Nothing better than an argumentative, stealing employee, huh? Just nothing better. And theft shows up in all kinds of ways, but and not seeking to please, but just maybe doing the bare minimum, and, and really not trusted. In fact, you can't trust them. That's why you put cameras everywhere. That's not how the Christian should be, though. I understand that the world would be like that. I do. They're in bondage to their sin. I am very confused that a Christian would act like that. Are they ignorant? Maybe. Maybe. But
1: you are not. Not anymore.
0: (laughs) So, why though? And here how he closes out this section. Just look at this. And this is the whole point. This is why he's pushing so hard and giving these instructions, these ethical instructions specifically to the congregations there on Crete. Remember, Crete had a bad reputation morally speaking. Like that probably wouldn't be a place where you'd wanna, like, buy a house. Maybe you know, like, that's not a great neighborhood. You know, those Cretans—they're not known for being ethical. They're liars. They're lazy gluttons. That's what Paul says. But now the gospel has come into that community and infiltrated these people, and now they are to live accordingly, and it should look different. A lot different. And it shouldn't be ugly. It should be beautiful. It should be wonderful. It should be good. It should be righteous. Look at what he says. Back to verse 9. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why, Paul? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn the gospel. Now, the Greek word for adorn is used here of the arrangement of jewels in a manner to set off their full beauty. That's the word. An arrangement of jewels in a manner to set off their full beauty. That's the idea that's being emphasized here, I believe, and why Paul uses that word. And one commentator points out, such a principle as this is by no means confined to slaves, bond servants. It's applicable to Christians in all walks of life. It's fitting that he closes the... So he's not... You know, you don't want to limit it just to the, the bond servants. Certainly, by behaving in this way, they will demonstrate the beauty of the gospel by behaving this way by being trustworthy servants, by not doing what was so common in the community, pushing back, arguing, pilfering, by seeking with all of their heart to please those whom they are under and is their authority in that culture. But it's certainly applicable to every grouping. That's why he closes it off with that section. Both the older men... Both the older women, both the younger women, and the younger men are to live their lives in such a way that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And in what way is that? It's in the way that Paul has just described in this section. One writer says, The final point about the conduct of Christian slaves also serves as the final point of the whole section. Paul wants the Christians in Crete not only to stand in contrast to the Cretan reputation exemplified by the rebels that we, Paul explains, those insubordinates, those false teachers uh, in verses 10 of 16 and chapter 1, but also to live in such a way that outsiders will not only not think badly and wrongly of the gospel, but actually be attracted to it by the believer's behavior. I like what John says. John MacArthur says, the true effectiveness of evangelism does not come from man-made methods, strategy, or marketing techniques adapted from the culture, but from the genuine virtue, moral purity, and godliness of believers whose lives give proof of the truth of God's word and the power of Christ to redeem men from sin.
1: He has a way with words. And
0: as our culture grows darker, if we're walking according to the gospel, our light will be brighter and brighter. And when God does his work and wakes up an individual, when they get to that place where they go, I am tired of living as the world lives. Is there any but out there with an answer. They should be able to see the light of the believer shining bright as he walks in godliness and has a peace and contentment and joy in the midst of all the craziness because he's living out that gospel. And by that, that unbeliever caught up in all of his stuff and looking around, does anybody have the answer? This is not working. He sees it, he goes, they have the answer. They must have the answer. Look at that. They look over here. Darkness, destruction, chaos. They look over there. Light, peace, joy. And they're drawn to it. Drawn to that person. Drawn to that Christian who then shares what's behind that life. Christ. And then they embrace Christ. That's the idea, guys. That's the idea. So we, as I said before, have a responsibility to walk in godliness. It's part of the means that God uses to draw sinners unto himself. And if we make a mistake and get caught up in our dark culture, then we'll basically be putting out the light.
1: Trust me. All of this foolishness, and it's getting foolish. It's going to result
0: in chaos and brokenness. More of it. All of these life choices, all of these decisions that our world is making, all of these this ways of thinking, and without getting into all that, it's going to result in brokenness. It's not going to go well for them. That shouldn't be so for us. We should be walking in the path of righteousness, which God promises to bless, so that when they end up broken, if they won't listen, when they end up broken, if they won't hear the gospel now, when they end up broken, they'll have somewhere to look because they'll see there is another way. There is another way. There is a way out. There is life in Christ. I was reading a blog of John MacArthur's, he put, he puts out, he's been putting out this blog about the church, and this is on February 11th, and I just pulled this one section, I'll close with this, and he talks about God being glorified through his people. That's what this is about. That's what this section is about. God being glorified through his people, and then through that, drawing people unto himself, and, and not giving the opponents any ammunition to push back against the gospel, or to try to discredit or discredit the Christian faith. He says this, through the transformed lives of his people, the Lord is making the gospel attractive to the unrepentant world. Transformed lives, beloved. He is drawing men and women to himself through the godly character of his church. Christ himself established that very pattern in Matthew's gospel. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He goes on to say, letting our light shine before men allows them to see our good works. The beauty the Lord has worked in us. That's what we want them to see. To see good works by us is to see Christ in us. That is why Jesus says, let your light shine. It's not something we create or make up, but light that God shines through us in that Dependent responsibility, as we're dependent on the Spirit, but knowing we're responsible to fight our sins and to live for Christ and to walk in His righteousness. He goes on to say, The purpose of letting our light shine and revealing our good works is not to bring attention or praise to ourselves. Some people get confused about that. But rather to God. Our intent should be that in what we are and in what we do, others may see God and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's the aim, that's the goal, that's the desire. Our good works are to magnify God and thus fulfill the supreme calling of life. Here it is, glorifying God. There is nothing more important. Everything we do ought to cause others to praise the God who is the source of all that is good. Our manner of living should draw those around us to glorify the Heavenly Father. Does your manner of living do that? This is the climactic reality of the church. God redeems sinners, thank you God, to build His church, that's us, and uses their transformed lives to reflect the majesty of His glory. Whereby he draws more sinners to himself. The awesome, blazing glory of the Lord shines through the church, or at least it should, a beacon in a lost and dark world. Oh Lord, help us to be that beacon. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the work that you're doing in us. Help us to be that beacon, Father. Help us to be that light. Lord, continue to work in us through all the means that you have provided to conform us and to transform us more into the image of our blessed Savior, your beloved Son, for your glory, God, for the advancement of the gospel, for the salvation of sinners. It's in Christ's name we pray.
1: Amen.